That's 21, 9 through 16. Paul presses on amid prophecy. One of the things that I pointed out before was that this is thematic and that um, this is an echo. There's an echo of Jesus' trip to Jerusalem to be rejected. Luke Acts has a theme. One of the themes of Luke Acts is that Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent to her. And Jesus is clearly the prophet predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy, uh, I think it's 1815, is that correct? Eric, is it Deuteronomy 1815? Yes. Okay, thanks. So the prophet that would speak, you don't have to listen to anybody, but uh, Moses and the prophets associated the Old Covenant until the one comes will speak. And that was, uh, that's Jesus according to the New Testament. So what we find out through, excuse me, I, I can hear a ring in here. I don't like trying to get a nice metal sound here. What we find out is that this is being repeated. Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent to her. Paul is speaking for God in a sent to Jerusalem on this trip, and here comes yet another incident of rejection. And in this process, we have people who speak and are pleading with Paul not to go because it's pretty clear that he's going to be in danger when he gets there and will be uh, bound and imprisoned, rejected. But he will not be dissuaded from this trip to Jerusalem. And this is reminding us of Jesus' trip to Jerusalem that was in Luke. It began in Luke 9.51. It goes all the way to the triumphal, or I should say the tragic entry. And Luke is not a triumphal entry. It's called that, but it's not. Because the people who are praising him are the disciples. The bigger, ominous thing in the background is the rejection. And then later it said that you will not see me again until you say, and then it repeats the Psalm 118. That future time when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and is accepted would be after the Great Tribulation. Is that right, Eric? So there's a future coming where they will, the leadership of Israel, but not now. It's not happening now. There's rejection. And there's also the prediction of the destruction of the temple. So let's go to Acts 21.9. On the way to Jerusalem, here we come to Philip's place. He had four unburied daughters who prophesied. Now, we were talking about this a few weeks ago. It certainly raises some questions. And I talked about it a little bit. And I have some notations on the slide here. The Greek has daughters, four virgins, prophesying, and the daughters being the subject, in other words, modified daughters. Now, 
I went back and uh, I made another slide. That's the last time I've mentioned that there's more than one type of prophecy in the New Testament, and not all of it is inspired in air binding prophecy directly from God, like through the mouth of Jesus, the prophet. There's other uh, ways that prophesying happens, and one of which is declaring the mighty deeds of God. So I did some work this week. Uh, did we mention Numbers 11 last time? I'm looking at my notes. We did? Yeah, okay, we did that. All right, let's go to this one then. Now, I did a break out, a slide that breaks out something I referenced so you can see this. I think it'll give us a really um, important view of how Luke writes. He, he loves to use previews that demonstrate the theme and then reviews later. <clears throat> now, men and women prophesy. The prediction that that would happen is found in Joel 2.28. Okay, Joel 2.28. So I have a slide for that here. Let's read it. It will come about after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That's a prediction. Now, the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter proclaimed that in Luke 2, 28, 29 was being fulfilled when, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people gathered there at Pentecost. I'll say one thing right away. This is not, it's universal as far as the categories of people, but it's not universal in regarding, regarding people in general. Not everybody at Pentecost was saved. Okay? Not everybody you attended. There was a lot of people, but not the majority by any means. This is the types of people. And this would be fulfilling this prediction. Now, Luke 1 and 2 gives previews of salvation. So before we get to Acts 2, where this happens, there's previews in Luke 1 and 2. And so I pulled out the references, put them on the slide here, so you have them in front of you, but we'll have to read them. I'll read the first one. Luke 1, uh, 39 through 40. Actually, I have one on my paper here. Um, an angel came and announced this before even came upon these different people. Luke 1, 34, 35, Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of most, the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy child should be called the Son of God. And then Luke 138, Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to be according to your word. So there is an announcement of the work of the Holy Spirit that will come to pass. Now, Luke 139 to 45. Now, at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country 
to a city of Judah. And entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. This would be the parents of John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice the theme, filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now here's a preview of salvation. And this isn't some, see all this stuff gets turned into church liturgy and becomes functionally meaningless. Okay, so people, blah, 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 they say this stuff. Never thinking, what does this mean? What is the implication? What was the context? What are we supposed to learn from this? What is it? What, what are the implications? But that's what we're going to do. We're going to actually study the text. So this would be the fact that the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth and she prophesied. It's a supernatural work of God. It's a preview of what's going to happen in Lucas. And so that's why I think Daniel called previews of salvation. And when people in the Bible, this is the Old Testament, I mentioned in my sermon last week, prophesying isn't only or uniquely um, just um, predicting the future or giving oral law. Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt do this and not do that. But prophesying in the broader sphere of meaning in the Bible is to declare the mighty deeds of God. As I mentioned last week, blessing is not to bless an object. It's to declare the blessedness of God. Blessed art thou, O Lord, uh, creator of the heaven and the earth. So here it says, um, she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and blessed are you. So I declared a person to be blessed because of a work that God was doing. That's what that was about. And blessed is Mary because she believed what was told to her by the Lord. So that's the case of prophesying. Remember, we're gonna. This is a preview that we'll get to when we get to Joel two twenty eight twenty nine. <coughs> it asks, excuse me, it asks. Now, Luke one forty six to forty fifty five. And Mary said, "My soul exalts the Lord; my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior." Did you know that Mary needed a Savior? For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessing. There's a prediction, by the way. And the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. That's an Old Testament citation. 51. He's done mighty deeds with his arms. 
He has scattered those who were proud in thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones. He exalted those who are humble. Now this prophecy by Mary, by whom the Holy Spirit had come, is revealing a theme in Luke-Acts. That the, the things that are, the proud, the, the powerful, the mighty, who are opposed to the ways of God because of motives that would put, give power to themselves, we're in charge of this temple, we're in charge of these sacrifices, we're going to decide what teachings are correct, and who are you people? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? There's this background, I don't know if that was in Luke, it's in the Gospel. The point is that this is what God's going to do. And then what God will do in bringing messianic salvation is use people that no one would ever expect God could or would use. Including Mary, who has a shameful situation, as far as they're concerned, or will have. Okay? And this isn't to create a goddess. This is to give hope to needy sinners. Who have nothing going. That God can have mercy and use us. It said he filled the hungry with good things, said the rich empty handed, way empty handed. Give it help to Israel's servants, remember remember something mercy, because he spoke to our fathers, Abraham and descendants her. Mary is no theologian. But she was steeped in Judaism, and she spoke about what God was doing. Better to study it than to turn it into a church liturgy. Amen. There's no liturgy. By the way, there's no liturgy prescribed in the New Testament. Zero. The high church sacramentalism liturgical invented by man with the effect of obscuring the gospel and turning Christianity into something God never intended it to be. What we have is humble reading of scripture, prayers for one another, prayers for people in authority, proclamation of the word of God, dependence on God, fellowship of the Lord and one another, and that's Christian fellowship. The sacramental liturgical I consider a total uh, apostasy from God, even if the words might be technically accurate in some cases, because eventually they become the traditions that are meaningless repetition. Yes? What's man's purpose in liturgy? Why do people do that? I mean, it, what, it, there's got to be some fleshy... subhuman um, reason for doing this. Well, I'll tell you the one that I was... Uh, that was spoken when I was studying church history seminary. There may be some truth to it. During the Dark Ages, we, there was a massive problem of illiteracy. And um, you couldn't just hand out a big manuscript and have somebody be able to read it. And so the idea is, well, people are illiterate, so we'll create something that has basic facts in it and repeat it in the service and then they'll know it. Is that what you heard, Eric? Absolutely. Yeah. Very true. Caused by illiteracy. Now, why was there 
Go ahead, Jan, over here. Oh, you have followed in, Jan. Yeah, okay. Um, my little education in Lutheranism was that the reason why Luther wrote the small catechism because the church was so uh, off base when it came to the basics of, of the faith, or that he started to do the small catechism, then he wrote the, the large catechism, mm -hmm. and uh, so on and so forth. Because the church was so apostate, it had lost its tracking so much. So I wanted to get back to things yeah. that were necessary. Yeah. But it became more of a rosary sort of deal. Yeah, or like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. I'm not saying that some of these creeds aren't very accurate. But let me let me say this. You have Jan over here. Um, the Bible, if you just read the New Testament, is not assuming illiterate congregations. Remember that all the material we did in First Timothy, the Second Timothy, second about elders able to teach and so forth. The assumption is in Judaism, in synagogue Judaism. You have literacy. You have biblical literacy. That was intended the way churches would be, literate and knowledgeable about truth through the sort of things we're doing here, teaching, interacting with scriptures, with one another, exhorting, learning, growing, being corrected, gaining better understanding. That is a lie. And it builds a lifelong understanding of, of the Bible that would become the meaningless repetition that becomes just that, meaningless. The meaning may be in the words, but until you're converted, you don't even think about going back and figure out what it was you were saying in your catechism. What do kids think of when they got to go through their catechism? When do I get out of here? When do I get these adults off my back? So we want to interact with the truth. Yes, Jan. I was just going to, I was just going to say that um, the Jews, in the end of their Torah, and then in their services, they always read a portion of the Torah, you know, part of the Torah, and then they have portions of, the, of like, from Isaiah and the prophets and everything. And it always reminded me of, like, the Catholic Church, how they, they kind of have that same pattern where they read, that's their liturgy, where they read, you know, something from the Gospels and something from the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So they follow that pattern. Okay, that's right. And, you know, uh, it's not bad to want to do that. So that it's uh, uh, in the minds of the hearers. But when I get to First Corinthians 14, Christians are First Corinthians, and some of the other material we have coming up, prophesying is important. <coughs> and that's what's lacking. Ironically, the Apostles and Prophets movement are so distorting what prophecy is that becomes they become biblically illiterate because they're looking for instantaneous uh, inspiration on just about anything rather than applying biblical truth to real situations and to to our lives. Yes, uh, Ron. Well, I was just going to say that. Um, 
I wonder, is liturgy go along with people's desire to have something to do, a procedure, a plan, uh, yeah, some kind of a written out thing that we have to do in order to be spiritual? You know, uh, like the mystics have all their... Uh, oh, do the work. Yeah. Do the work. Yeah. You know, if, if, you do the, if you do the liturgy, you're doing something. You need a plan. You need something to do. Not just believe. Uh, it could very well be, uh, I think there's probably different reasons. I would say in the case of Rome, you have works because, as I understand it, people go tell the priests they sin, then the punishment is saying things that would be, we would consider part of liturgy. Say you're our father. Well, that's the Lord prayer that could become part of liturgy. Say you're whatever, Mary. Okay, so it, it becomes punishment for doing bad things. Yeah, and so it's either meaningless repetition or punishment. But what I'm doing here is I'm going into the same material in Luke and explaining in context what's Luke's point. And Luke's point is leading up to Acts 2. Because already, by the time you get to Joel 2.28, through the mouth of Peter, you've had old men, daughters, prophesying. What's already happened. And it's done so in a powerful, meaningful way because the advent of messianic salvation is on the scene of history, and the people that are the first eyewitnesses are the ones the Holy Spirit comes upon, and they're speaking about it. And how much more powerful is speaking about our initial salvation and edifying and encouraging one another and reminding us of this and seeing the impact of it then either liturgical meaningless repetition that becomes that, and you know, there's a meaning to the Apostles' Creed, but somebody needs to preach it, preach Christ. And, or, we need to do signs and wonders, otherwise we just have boring service. And if God doesn't do the signs and wonders, you have pretend ones that are created by emotional manipulation of crowds or music, uh, misused music designed to call down the Holy Spirit as if the Holy Spirit hasn't already been poured out in all flesh. we got to call him down to a certain geographical. That's very prominent in the music of the NAR. God's going to come here, we're going to call him down. And when he does, the miracles are going to happen. And when they don't happen, which they don't, they literally say they happened when they didn't. Literally, they have people said people get with no limb got a limb. I heard a guy say that on TV. But knowing medical records, modern medicine, and everything is dull. Everything's X-rayed. Everything's right in a computer file. If a twenty-year-old man with no arm, had a new limb, everybody in the world would know what. But there's the guy sitting there saying, that's what happened in that meeting in there, where they were in there 24 hours. But there's never any evidence that it ever happened. And there would be.
You couldn't, you couldn't hide it. You just get the doctor, the x-rays, the medical, it would be right there. So they have fake miracles. They're nothing but rumors out of the word of mouth. So what we're going to do is see what prophecy really is. I promise you, it's powerful. It's life-changing. It involves every Christian and will encourage us and help us grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And it's relational. It's not here to be sensational. Yes. You know, I think your idea about when the word of God is meaningless or it's rote, it's just vain repetition, that ends up being the problem. Think about in Isaiah chapter 1. God tells the Israelites regarding the sacrifices that he commands them to engage in. He says he doesn't want to see them anymore because they were doing that by rote rather than by faith. This is what Jesus said. He says from Isaiah 29, 13, he's rebuking the Israelite leadership. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines and the commandments of men. So we can take liturgy. You've mentioned numerous times, Bob, over the years in sermons, that if someone will believe the words of some of the liturgies, they'll actually become saved. I remember as a young man in a Lutheran church hearing 1 John 1, 8 through 9 over and over, that if we say that we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It did mean not a lick of good because I didn't believe a word of it. But when I became a believer later on, all of a sudden I became a precious verse. Why? Because the word was believed. So the issue is in your life, is it vain, vain, meaningless repetition? It will do you no good. You can cite it a thousand times, the Lord's Prayer. It won't do any good. But if you believe, then... You're saying very good. That's an astute reading. Does that mean that the letter kills the spirit gives life? Yeah, the the letter there that Paul's referring to is the Mosaic Law. So the Mosaic Law killed because it just condemned you. You have to do this, oh why you can't do it. So that's where the spirit gave life. Why? Because by faith he gives you faith and enable enables you to believe and therefore obey. Right. Yeah. That doesn't mean the the what's said is wrong. Right. It's the very word of God, but it became something else. Very good. That's a great reading. Thank you. Great reading. Um, I must my story too. But the thing that really shocked me was okay. So I'm in the church, and it wasn't you know Methodist. It was somewhat liturgical because Wesley was Anglican, and some of that was there. So we did dance out there, and then I finally got bold enough to rebel and just go to the golf course on Sunday morning. Because <laughs> I wasn't a Christian anyhow. But when I was converted, I went and talked to the pastor. I found out he didn't believe the stuff. And I had already found that out when I was in membership training. He didn't believe it. They didn't believe there was a hell. They believed that Jesus was a good man, but they didn't believe what he said. So the vain repetition doesn't even convert to clergy. Yes. Bob, you're not the spiritual golf No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, no. Yeah, the thing about it, Sheldon, Iowa was a Dutch Reformed community for the most part. And the, the Sunday was their version of the Jewish Sabbath. So the golf course was wide open on Sunday morning. You can get tea time. Nobody was pushing you. Yeah, no problem. 
Bash led Methodists and Catholics to went to Sinner's Mass. We had to go. <laughs> All right, let's go on. Thank you. Very good reading. I, this is what I need to help formulate my mind. How would you define the church biblically? Well, the word of prophecy is very important. So that is a poison for misuse. Well, let's go on here. How about Zacharias? Now, who's going to prophesy? Women, men, sons and daughters. Here's uh, Zacharias, uh, father of John the Baptist, an old man who been, was he, um, he mute because of having not believed? I think that's right. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens when somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, let's see. Prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Remember what we learned last week? You don't bless an object and then sell it in a Christian bookstore. You bless God, the giver. Blessed be God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us, accomplishing redemption for his people. Visitation of God is a profound idea, spoke by Zacharias when he got his speech back. Visitation, where we get our work for presbyters or elders, would be God inspecting what's going on. So this visitation means God comes to Israel, and when God comes, some are saved and many are judged. That's what happens at a visitation. And uh, he's visited. What did Jesus lament later? You did not recognize your day of visitation. Okay? They took it as bad when God visited. And they got rid of Messiah the best way they could. But it was God visiting also for salvation. They missed that part of it. Accomplished redemption for his people. Verse 69, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So to show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us a rescue from the hand of our enemies by serving without fear. Well, Zacharias's prophecy, let me continue here, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. That would be John the Baptist, his son, his old age. Dear ones, the themes remain the same. Some of what Zacharias prophesies when the Holy Spirit comes upon him hasn't happened yet. Serving God in holiness for Israel all of his days is going to be in the millennium. But yet, the beginning of it are right there in Luke Acts. So there's an old man that prophesies. Luke 2.25, there was a man in Jerusalem with the name of Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Notice that theme. The Holy Spirit was upon him. When you hear somebody claim, 
the Holy Spirit came and them. Listen to what they say. Just listen. The Holy Spirit came and everybody shook like a leaf and fell on the ground. I was in a meeting like that before. Just think about it. If we study the Bible, we'll get the idea. What is prophecy? The Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is unusual and unique because of the time and the place here. That he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, that he took him into his arms and blessed. Who did he bless? He blessed God. Yes, dear ones. He blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, preview of salvation, all peoples meaning not just the Jews, right? All peoples, there it is, preview of salvation, in light of revelation to Gentiles, Simeon, Holy Spirit comes upon him. He predicts that God's going to save Gentiles. Not a common theme, was it? And the glory of your people in Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him, that is, Jesus. And Simeon, Mary and Joseph, referring to Jesus, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold this child. Notice this is very important in Luke S. Luke 2.32. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign to be opposed. This is very pertinent to what we're studying in Acts 21. Simeon, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, prophesied that this would be a division and that there would be opposition. Messiah would be a sign to be opposed. Luke 2, 34. Verse 35, And a sorrow will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There is opposition. There's sorrow. There's a piercing of the soul that goes along with the Holy Spirit's work of using people, ordinary people, through his plan to bring messianic salvation to Israel and to the whole world. One more. A prophet. Remember the theme? Men and women will prophesy. All right, let's continue. Luke 2, 36, 38. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after their, her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. So here we have an 84-year-old widow. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Verse 38. At that very moment, she came up, began giving thanks to God. By the way, there's parallel phrases in the Bible. 
where it talks about giving thanks to God and blessing God. All right? You, you know what the church and church history does? You bless an object and make it holy. You make water holy. You make wine holy. You make a cup holy. And you don't give any thanks to God. You change an object into something, then you can try to keep it from being defiled by putting it away because it's a holy object or a holy place or a holy geographical location. Dear ones, we got to think biblically. Christendom is unbiblical. Christendom in church history is filled with error and foolishness. We need to get into the scripture. So uh, here it says that it should begin giving thanks to God and, and continue to speak of him to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she gave thanks to God, the Holy Spirit came upon her, and spoke about God to everyone who's looking for a redemption of Israel. Dear ones, when the Holy Spirit comes upon people, they bless God, they speak of the mighty deeds of God, they describe the character of God, the promises of God, and they preach God to the people about what salvation looks like and what he's done and what it means and what are the implications and what should happen in our hearts that we should become humble, that our hearts would be softened, that we would rejoice in the things that God rejoices in and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be on our lips. And yes, in this context, if we understand this and it sinks in, then when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, it says you may all prophesy in a decently and orderly way. We'll understand what it is we are called to do. And what it's been turned into is an abomination. And frankly, um, prophesy what demon is making you the way you are. Prophesy what generational curse you're under. Not what it means. Yes. Is that why the Catholics bow down before the elements? They kind of genuflect before the elements? Well, the, the inherent in the whole idea is that there are holy objects and that holy people with certain status conferred upon them by the hierarchy have the ability, if they do it right, to create the holy object. And then once you have your holy object, you have to guard it. This is, and I, we can't just ascribe uh, this problem to Catholicism. It's throughout Christendom. Um, well, let's take the idea of the altar, right? I've I'm, I'm working on a sermon for the last Sunday in February. I got most of it done, but the word table is in there. Baptists have altars. And the altar is assumed to be a place where if you go there, God will meet you. All right? And uh, I don't think they would say God can't meet you down in the basement or out in the parking lot. But the altar really works. And if you really want the altar to save you, Somebody should be playing soft music while you go there. Because it seems uh, 
well, maybe I, maybe I should. It seems nice and whatever. This, I'm not here to just bash everybody, but to get us to see the truth. The fact is, it's relational. It's not about objects. It's not about buildings, objects, water, cups, tables, carpet, candles. It's about God. Read what happens when people do speak by the Spirit. They may, they were doing so in places that were born in Israel. By the way, this will change during the millennium. I'm talking about the church age. There will be holy places in Israel during the millennium. We'll have to go there. The Feast Tabernacles, is that right? But now, it doesn't matter where you are. And so, that, uh, here's what I would do if I was denominational. I would try to get rid of what's possible, and the rest I would claim Christian liberty for. You could rightly say, having a place for people to go to pray, if you're not making some claim about it, is within our liberty. That's very much true. And that people can be, you can ask people to come and pray, or you can have someone available, and so on. I think there's, there's liberties, and we can claim liberty, but that's not usually what happens. What happens is ascribing some sacred power to a place or a thing. Then we're starting to head back to Rome. And some of the Southern Gospel music I've been listening to will both, both do that and somebody else have a song saying, well, yeah, that was the place I was saved, but it wasn't the place, it was the Lord. So they, they realized the difference. Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I was just going to mention, um, my wife goes to a uh, Catholic church. She goes to the Archdiocese or the Cathedral of St. Paul. They actually have uh, people in the in the congregation that are, are guarding against people that take the host, the, what they claim is the body and blood of Christ. They actually, some of the, some of the, you know, uh, I guess even the LGBT people or, or people that are satanic or whatever, they'll come and take those hosts and, and they'll do something. They'll bring it back with them without consuming it. And that's forbidden. They're, they're not, they're supposed to consume the, the host right there. Okay. So anyways, they have people that are assigned to watch for that, and they, they'll actually confront the person that's doing that, and it's uh, kind of interesting. It's considered sacrilegious. Yes, exactly. And they also have, uh, as you say, uh, Knights of Columbus is, is one of the layman orders that basically their their function, I, I think they, they have several functions, but one of them is to, is to guard against holy objects and things like that. They're, they're, they're kind of a... A militant uh, division of the church. That's that's basically. And if you look into the Inquisitions too, a lot of that is is uh, is due to people um, guarding against people so-called sacrilegious sac sacrilegious type things against the different different things of the Catholic Church. Um, yeah. Anyway, so there's okay, guarding the objects. Yeah. Right. Um, well, you have reform guarding the table. I, I'm just as critical of that. You got to guard the table. Why? 
because the table's a sacred, and somebody may get there who is a sinner. And we got to guard it. And they will literally guard the table against people known to be born-again Christians, but have not ascribed to every word of their... Uh, what would I call it? Uh, their doctrinal... It's more than doctrine. It's a... Come on, creedal statement. You know, the, whatever creedal statement, you better be uh, on board every single point or we're going to guard the table against you. But actually... Um, it's we we just don't have the idea right. Go ahead, brother. There's a little humor actually. Many years ago, uh, I had an aunt and an uncle, and uh, the the uh, aunt was um, our second cousin, I guess. She was Catholic. The mom was Catholic. Well, and then the husband, my actual cousin, was a Lutheran. And so they had a lovely daughter, and she got engaged to be married. And I went to the wedding. My mom and I went. Actually, I was a single guy back then. But at the wedding, we, we it was a Catholic wedding, and so we knew that the father of the bride would not be allowed to take communion. Okay? And so I remember thinking, that's kind of a shame, you know? Uh, and so, but what happened <laughs> is that the night before the wedding, the groom got so drunk. He got so stinking drunk that at the wedding, he was just looked awful. Now, if my cousin was a gorgeous woman and a championship figure skater, she's very athletic. So here's this couple up there, and, and the husband, the, the groom, he passed out flat on the floor right in the middle of the sermon, uh, of the service, and so nobody took communion. So anyway, we just had to share that. That good. Okay, we're going to go to another slide. We're going to keep going. <laughs> That's uh, not good. Agabus prophesied. Now, let's, let's, in this case, we have Agabus, a little stronger version of a prophet. Acts 21, 10 and 11. And we were staying there for some days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own feet and hands and said, quote, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this bell and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles, unquote. So we have a prophet that is known in Acts, Agabus, is very specific about what would happen when Paul went to Jerusalem. Now, he doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, don't go to Jerusalem. But he does say what will happen. And which, by the way, it did happen. Now, this is a little more uh, pointed. Some of the prophecies we saw at the beginning of Luke had to do generally the rise and fall of many, the assigned to be rejected, and so on. So here is something specific to Paul. So we have some important geographical references. Judea was the region which included Jerusalem, and uh, 
came to and as they came to Caesarea was considered part of Samaria by the Jews. So you have Judea and Samaria here. From Caesarea, you go up to Jerusalem. And so you're seeing the scene of what was given as the Great Commission in Luke 24 and Acts 1. Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. So this is the arena for the gospel, according to what Jesus gave to the disciples. So Caesarea was considered part of Samaria by the Jews. Agabus was part of the Jewish community from the area of Jerusalem. Agabus predicts what will happen to Paul. I want to quote Dr. Schnabel, whose commentary is really fantastic, I think. Schnabel, quote, The Jews could imprison people and inflict the punishment of 40 lashes minus one. Um, but it was only the Gentiles, specifically the Roman governor, who could impose the death penalty. Luke's narrative in 21, 27 to 33 relates the fulfillment of the prophecy, says Schnabel, albeit in a general sense. The Jews seize Epibalon, 21-27, Paul in the temple. Then they drag him out of the temple, precinct, and try to kill him, 21-30-31. They hand him over to the Roman authorities only when the Roman officer intervenes who arrests Paul and orders him to be bound by two chains, 21-33. So that's what will happen. And then we are setting up what will be the rest of the book of Acts, which is Paul being brought before Roman authorities as he appeals all the way to Caesar at Rome. So this does happen. So the danger to Paul in Jerusalem is a theme in this travel narrative. Now later... Jesus will affirm this, and that's in Acts 23, 11. I'll quote that to you. Acts 23, 11. But on the night immediately following, this is, I believe, after Paul's arrest, the Lord stood at his side and said, here's what the Lord Jesus said to Paul. Acts 23, 11. Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also, most a day, which in Luke Acts almost always means by divine necessity. It's a divine necessity that Paul will witness in Rome. Jesus told him that. Now, Eric and I have pointed out many times, the appearance of Jesus to Paul is not limited to what happened in Acts 9. He got, he, he's uh, objectively appeared to Paul and spoke to him more, more than that, much more. And so that includes Acts 23, um, 2133, excuse me. Is that the right one? Yeah, 2311, excuse me, 2311. Jesus himself says that. So this is, if you, we want to learn how to be the best readers we can be. If you want to know 
Christian theology, learn how to be a great reader of the Bible. And to read, you take note of what the author is saying. The biblical idea, in fact, the necessary human idea, is that the author determines the meaning. The author, and these are very skilled writers, Luke is brilliant, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's telling us things, his meaning is God's meaning. The things we do with word studies and cross-references and uh, geographical studies about the situation, historical studies, all of those things don't create the meaning, they help us understand the meaning. Meaning comes from the author. When you're looking back a couple thousand years, everything that helps us understand Luke's meaning helps us understand what God has said. The author determines the meaning. That's the way languages work. Thought of an illustration. I've been watching basketball lately, and uh, the college where I went, Iowa State, has a, a good team in the top 25, so I watch when I can. But I notice there's terminology. Maybe nobody else watches basketball, but I'll tell you what the terminology is. It's more recent. You listen to the commentators, and they're playing basketball, and they say, this player, this guard, he needs to play downhill. When he, when he goes downhill, that's when things happen. And what that means is, which we know, drives to the hoop. Go that way. Don't go out this way and that way. Go to the hoop. Get in there. Make something happen. Kick it back out or make a layup or pull up, whatever. Go downhill. Now, let's just, for example, suppose 2,000 years later, basketball is unknown. It's a sport that existed 2,000 years earlier. And somebody says, you know, we need to take things literally. And they find something where it's a commentary written up about a basketball game. So that point guard really knew how to go downhill. I can, it wouldn't even, it's not even inconceivable that somebody can argue a literal interpretation they had a sloped floor. Basketball wasn't played on a flat floor because they said you have to go downhill. To go downhill, you have to have higher and lower. Now, we know that's absurd. It's a figure of speech because we're living while they're using the terminology. I've heard arguments just that stupid being given by people who are trying to do theology. They take their King James Bible and say, there, we believe in literal. Or maybe you could do that with any Bible. But And then now you have yet another complication, because not only are you going back a thousand years, you're going back several hundred years with the English language. So, no, we believe in literal. I just saw one. So I had to share this to help us realize why we do this. We want to know what Luke meant. He gives us the ability to do that by how he writes, which is amazing. Here's what I saw the other day. I wrote a whole article about it. We're going to get it published. We decided to take the Great Commission literally. That's what they said. We're going to take the Great Commission literally in Matthew. And it says, go and disciple the nations. 
So tedium literally meant, in their mind, you are going to invade the places of power in the culture. They call it the seven mountains. And we're going to have, we're going to look for the higher up people because they're going to help us, whether they're Christian or not. We're going to get the powerful, the influencers, and whatever, and we're going to invade the culture, and we're going to make disciples by uh, invading the culture, taking the seven mountains, and have a Christianized culture, and therefore life will be better, and eventually we'll get the millennium. Whoops. The claim is that they did that by taking this literally. Because it says, disciple the nations. Make disciples of all nations. I just wrote an 8,000 word article that we're going to publish. I just got back from the last reader, so we're working on publishing it. Where I said, okay, what does Matthew mean? And I, I went through Matthew. I spent hours and hours and hours upon hours going back through and getting up to speed with Matthew. Matthew, what does Matthew mean by a disciple? You want to get the mic to Luann? Well, what does uh, Matthew mean by a disciple? And I give scripture after scripture. And a disciple is not a geopolitical unit. It's a person. But see, they sound like they're honoring the Bible by saying we take it literally. That's no more literal than saying the basketball court actually is sloped. The author determines the meaning. The commentator meant the guy drove toward the basket, set it side by side. Not that there's a slope on the floor. Matthew means that the arena where disciples are made will be all of the ethne, all around the world. Thus, the same thing Luke is saying. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. Not that the cultural unit is what will be the disciple. So I had 8,000 words to show that. But the good, maybe you won't read it because it's long, but it will help you understand Matthew. Yes, Luann. Well, I just wanted, because I think this fits here, but when you talk about commentaries um, and their purposes, some would say that things like the chosen do that too, that they fill in these details that are plausible. Can you speak to that? Well, plausible, um, I have, I don't know about the, I don't know anything about the chosen. The, the art form, but let me just talk to plausible. In biblical interpretation in Christian theology, plausible is not decisive about too many things. Let me give you a quick example. I've got one minute according to mine. Um, quick example. Someone wrote a brilliant book. I mean, an utterly brilliant book. William Lane Craig wrote a book. It's one of the most brilliant ones that I've ever read. It's called Only Wise God. And what William Lane Craig is doing is creating a plausible way that God saves 
certain people, but not everybody. And it's called middle knowledge, which he got from a Catholic theologian from centuries earlier. And his book says God's infinite knowledge is like the greatest supercomputer that could ever be. Uh, and therefore, what God did before he created anything was in his mind saw every possible, every possible world, every possible outcome, everything that could ever happen by creating a universe and what will happen in that universe. And using the idea that which, which one of these possible worlds would be such that the most people would be saved through their free will choices, that's the one I'll create. So it gets rid of the problem of foreknowledge being, because God knows everything, so it's certain. And it's a brilliant book. So you still have all of the things that happened, but God determined it only by determining which world he would create. So I read that in seminary. It's plausible, but does the Bible teach that? No. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God acts according to his good pleasure. So plausible isn't the same as intended by the biblical author. Do you see the difference? Plausible is a way, way lower test of truth. Plausible. It's nice to have. Okay. What's that? A lot of plausible Yeah. It's plausible that the earth is warming because we're breathing. I don't think it's that plausible. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy. Pray for Pastor Eric as he teaches your word to us. May we have a hunger for the truth and a desire to search the scriptures and learn from what you're saying. Thank you for all you're doing. Would you pray for those sick among us that you bring healing and strength to each one? Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.